0: Christina Polchowski, welcome to The New School.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be part of this.
0: And Rachel Naomi Remen, welcome to The New School. (laughs) Thanks, Michael. (laughs) So what a joy it is to be here with uh, two pioneers of work in uh, spiritual dimensions of healing, and also with two pioneers who have given a great deal of thought Uh, to end-of-life issues and the spiritual dimension of of end-of-life issues. Uh, Christina Polshawski is the founder and executive director of the George Washington Institute for Spirituality and Health in Washington, D.C., and professor of medicine and health sciences at George Washington University School of Medicine, and is internationally recognized as a pioneer in the field of spirituality and health. Uh, Christina, you're the author of Time for Listening and Caring, Spirituality and the Care of the Seriously Ill and Dying, from Oxford Press, and uh, a more recent book, um, Making Healthcare Whole, Integrating Spirituality into Patient Care, with Betty Farrell, which uh, Rachel Naomi Remen wrote an introduction for. Uh, also, the Dalai Lama wrote the introduction for your previous books so those are as we say serious street creds in the uh, uh, world of spirituality and healing. Rachel suggested and I thought it was a good idea that we might just go directly to the heart of the matter and ask you as a starting place what is a good death?
1: So that's an interesting question because I actually don't like that term a good death. Um, Because for each, you know, over the years, I think people have defined good deaths as where pain and symptoms are controlled, where people find meaning and purpose in their life, where the family is surrounded at the bedside. And there have been so many definitions of a good death. And often, death is actually unexpected or it's not planned the way we think it's going to happen and um, it may not exactly fit all those criteria and then families walk away thinking that their loved one, quote, did not have a good death. So I prefer to think of it as a good death is however each individual sees that for themselves. I have patients who for whom a good death was an ICU death and in spite of the fact that many of us would think that was not a good death but in fact that met their belief system. They they felt that they gave gave every shot, so to speak, with the illness, and that their family will recognize that they tried to stay alive as possible, long as possible, and that gave them that gave them their sense of meaning and purpose. And they would have called that a good death, or they did call that a good dying. Um, for other people, a good death was um, being able to die at home surrounded by their pets and their loved ones and their children and grandchildren. And um, and yet for other people, a good death is one in which they face it alone in quiet and solitude. So I think there's many different ways that people perceive that. And I would, rather than a good death, say that it's a death that is one that people feel that they've given some thought to throughout their life and that they've lived a good life and they're able to uh, come to terms with their living and hence what they're dying. Mm
0: -hmm. Rachel, does the sense of the concept of a good death have meaning for you?
2: Uh, I think I agree completely with Christina uh, that this is something, what could be more personal uh, than the way in which you die? Uh, We don't get much to say about the way in which we're born, but we can have some input over the circumstances in which we die, unless, of course, we have an unexpected or accidental death. And it seems to me that this, this eases a great deal of distress, both for the person themselves and also for their family. And I think the difficulty comes up when the family has an idea of what the good death is. And a person has a different idea of that. Uh, I've been caught in those situations. Christina, I'm sure you have also. And they're very painful,
1: aren't they? Oh, very painful. Yeah. Because there's a lot of conflict for both patient and family.
0: Christina, you talk about uh, spiritual suffering as an important dimension of the suffering that people often go through in the dying process. And indeed, your your second book uh, really is addressed to, if I have it right, why spiritual suffering may have become more acute with the advent of modern and often curative medicine and the movement of the dying process away from a home-based context and a a spiritual tradition of... of, uh, supportive care into the hospital uh, and into a a focus on technologies. Can you say a little more about spiritual suffering and what we need to do in our time to alleviate it?
1: So I, I think suffering is a really important concept that, as you say, before the advent of technology, I think people recognized that suffering was holistic. There was, uh, you know, Cicely Saunders talked about total pain, um, that suffering is as much a part of that as physical pain or emotional distress or social distress. So um, the reason I think people, it's more acute now is, as you say, when we focus only on one of those dimensions, then suffering does not get attended to. So if we're only walking into a patient's room and saying, what is your pain on a scale of 1 to 10, where that question gets interpreted as physical pain and the response gets interpreted as adjusting medications, we're not opening the door to the possibility even of a conversation about spiritual distress or suffering or existential distress or religious distress. We're not opening that door at all. And yet our patients are sitting there with very intense, deep um, sense of, of emptiness or despair or hopelessness or lack of meaning but we're not even addressing that at all in our medical system. I think suffering can also be much more serious and have a greater impact on people sometimes than physical pain. I don't want to be misinterpreted, but you know, physical pain can be really acute and can certainly inhibit actually someone from exploring their own suffering and should be treated. But I think we have to recognize that when someone is saying, I'm in pain, that we need to be thinking about what is that source of pain. Is it physical and social? Is it physical and spiritual? And then provide the opportunity for our patients to express that sense of suffering. And what that requires of us is a different approach than adjusting a morphine pump. It really requires us as healthcare professionals, as loved ones actually too, to sit in presence and often in silence as people wail out their pain, their suffering, um, for which often there is no answer. And and Rachel, I mean, Rachel, you talk about this all the time, how, how challenged we feel when we're trained in a system to provide answers and cures and fixes and we're presented with something for which there is nothing that we can really do other than offer our presence often and just give the patient the time and the space to find answers for themselves as they work through their suffering. Not alone with us, but they still have to ultimately do that work on their own.
0: Rachel, would you like to comment on that?
2: Um, you know what I I have often felt? <clears throat> that, um... Our, our need to have answers and to appear as if we have answers makes the, that whole situation much more difficult. Um, If more of us let go of our expert position and simply said, you know, can we share the questions with you? Because we don't have answers for these. These are questions that people have had since the beginning of time. And we don't have answers for... um, We can't fix this. And we have no answers for it. But we can share the search for something that will work for you. I think we would do much better in
0: our relationships with the families and the patients. Christina, you tell the story in Making Healthcare Whole, and I may not have the detail right, but I think it was of a patient that you worked with who had pancreatic cancer and was dying and said his pain, despite all the medications he was getting, that his pain was just over the top. Could you Um, tell that story?
1: Yeah, that was an amazing, an amazing patient. I was on call for hospice and was rounding on the patients at at the hospice. And so this was a gentleman I had never met before. And I remember walking into the hospice that morning and one of the nurses saying, you have to see Mr. X, um, because we are using these enormous doses of morphine and benzodiazepines and other medications to work with his pain, and he's still rating it 100 on a scale of 1 to 10. And we're getting to the point where we're uncomfortable using those doses and you have to understand in the context hospice nurses have a much greater comfort with going quite high on these doses safely and so when a hospice nurse says that you know that it's they're really at their max and so and it was the whole staff that felt that way so i went in to talk with him and um it was a interesting conversation he's very guarded at the at the beginning and, and really focused a lot on his physical pain and then eventually you know, opened up a little bit and shared some things with me. I did a spiritual history with, with him and he talked about being an Episcopalian and but didn't really share a lot, just a few things and it became a little uncomfortable actually with me when I mentioned that, not about my discussing it with him but sort of, yes, yes, I'm an Episcopalian. Well, it was important for me. And so I recognized there was something there and you know we concluded our conversation, and I um, you know he, we talked a little bit about his fear about his cancer, but he's very guarded again, very much in control, um, had his computer there was still working, and um, wanted to really you know keep at that safe limit. so in team rounds, I brought this up and actually shared this with a chaplain. Um, that perhaps this is a spiritual issue, not so much physical pain, but maybe some real distress. And so both the chaplain I went back subsequently that weekend, and the chaplain went back uh, several, several times, and, and then the nurses on the team. And over the course of, I would say, a couple of weeks, and now I was no longer on call, so I, I, I would come in maybe once a month, but over the next couple of weeks, the staff had more conversations with him, and it turned out that he was homosexual and he was very active in his church and it meant a great deal to him but that he was afraid uh that now that he was in hospice and you know that they had noticed that some some young men were coming to visit him but he never acknowledged who they were but he was nervous that the people from church would judge him poorly and he kept all of this to himself he never shared being gay to anybody and was really sad and um and so once he started talking about that and eventually was able to have the priest come by and was able just to be authentic and be accepted, um, he shared it with me on a subsequent visit and was much more open and really chatty and really comfortable talking. You know, you could tell that he had made some transformation. Uh, after after a couple of visits, uh, the nurses told me they went drastically down. And in fact, the last time I saw him before he died, he was on hardly any medication at all with a, a a pain scale of like one out of ten, you know, just slight pain, and Taiwan always taking care of it. It was amazing. Pancreatic cancer can be very painful. So, I mean, I think that was a perfect example for me of, of how suffering can impact how physical pain, how pain is experienced in general and how it's perceived of by the team and by the patient as being entirely physical, but it has many other components as well.
0: You talk in your book about the importance of taking a spiritual history of uh, patients. Uh, why is that, and and what does a spiritual history accomplish?
1: So, um, there's a little background to that of why I created the spiritual history and why that's actually come up in our consensus model in that in the in the book making healthcare whole. When I first started doing this work in the very early 90s. I was talking with my patients about spirituality, and then I developed a course in '92 on spirituality and health. And what I found was that physicians and other healthcare professionals were not per se against uh, integrating spirituality into health. Many thought that, yes, it's definitely an important arena, but it's very philosophical. It's hard to understand what does it mean. You know, how how can you address it simply in a medical model Maybe we should better just leave it alone and leave it to the chaplains or the clergy. So, you know, spirituality is very broadly defined. It's not just around religion, but it is. I agree. You know, it is very. It can be very philosophical. It's intensely personal, and it's hard to put words on it. But I felt early on that in order to have it integrated, we had to be a little reductionistic in it in order to be able to get that even integrated into the healthcare system. So I developed a tool with a few of my colleagues based on some of the ways that I was asking questions in the clinical setting, a tool that could be relatively simple, not too hard to uh, understand, and could be done in a a short amount of time so that physicians and others wouldn't think it would take a huge half-hour or 60-minute conversation. Now, as an aside, spirituality is very, very full and personal, and one can have two, three-hour conversations with patients and never really yet find out the fullness of spirituality, but the goal was really to have a tool that would invite patients to share with their clinicians, if they want to, about their spiritual beliefs or practices. So that's why I developed the FICA tool. And it, uh, the opening question is about spiritual beliefs, and defining it pretty broadly it can be how people understand meaning and purpose and their connection to the moment, to nature, to the sacred, to the significant, however people understand that. So it can be religious, it can be other, other ways. So, you know, do you have spiritual beliefs or practices? And if the person says yes, can you tell me more about that? What gives your life meaning? And then I is how important are those beliefs and or practices in your daily life? And how do they impact the way you care for yourself and or your healthcare decisions? And then C is, a, is community. So is there a, a group of people that you really love? Or is it church, temple, mosque, or like-minded friends or the yoga group? Is there some group that you identify as a spiritual support community, which brings in the extrinsic aspect? of that. And then the A is to be thinking about with what your patient shared with you, how that might get integrated into the plan. And so more recently in making healthcare whole in in that consensus model, we actually discussed doing a biopsychosocial spiritual assessment and plan, not just a physical assessment and plan, but to identify all those different dimensions that our patient has shared with us.
0: You know, there's a, a fundamental strategic question that that we have wrestled with in different ways at Commonweal um, about the use of the term spiritual. And, and you use it in a broad sense, and rightfully so. Uh, and you subsume under it, as a core dimension of it, uh, the concept of meaning. And uh, in fact, on the first uh, page of your first chapter, uh, you, you write, uh, "Victor Frankl wrote, quote, man is not destroyed by suffering, he is destroyed by suffering without meaning. And then you say spirituality helps give meaning to suffering and helps people find hope in the midst of despair and so forth. One of Rachel Naomi Remen's programs through the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness at Commonweal uh, is called Finding Meaning in Medicine. And so my question is, uh, given how uh, fundamentally secular the you know, science-based medicine is uh, and how challenging it is to reintegrate spirituality and how complex and varied the cultures of belief and non-belief are in the United States. Is spirituality in medicine, in fact, the best way to work on this or is meaning, the best way to work on it, which of which spirituality could be equally well a subset?
1: An excellent question. And um, and I'd love to hear Rachel's comments on this, too. I, I struggled with that at the very beginning. Um, I think when... And I've tried... I actually tried it, and I periodically will ask the meaning question, you know, uh, first. Usually when... Patients get asked. So a lot of my work actually came out of my practice, not out of research first. But when when patients get asked, what gives your life meaning while they're with you in a in the clinical context, it's often puzzling to a lot of people. And for many people, it's not necessarily equated to spirituality. So um, you know, someone might say, oh, you know, it's meaningful for me to I, I like sports. You know, that's something that you know gives me meaning. But they don't think of it in the in the context of the way I know Rachel talks about it, having been to her groups, um, and the way I I think of meaning, the way a lot of people who are um, philosophers or spirituality think about meaning. So I think that's a problematic word. I agree that spirituality is also a problematic word, because in some circles it is equated with religion, and so some people don't think of it as being more broadly defined. But I think over the years the term spirituality has been recognized to be more inclusive of a lot of different beliefs from secular humanism to religiosity. Um, in Canada, Canada is a perfect example. When I spoke there in the late 90s and the early 2000s, um, spirituality was not used at all. It was all about meaning-centered and asking patients about meaning, um, and the, the, the data was more on... Uh, you know, existential beliefs and values, again, meaning and purpose, Balfour Mons, quality of life instrument, having an existential domain. And when I was there about two years ago at the same conference on on uh, palliative international palliative care, um, now all of a sudden the instruments were, t- were measuring spirituality. And so I asked some of the researchers, well, this is quite a shift because spirituality was not the word to use. And they said, well, we've really come to understand that we needed to include that broader one to be able to capture all of the different types of expressions, not just purely existential meaning, but to talk about the spiritual context in, within religiosity and nature and other things as well. I don't think there's a perfect word not have the, what is, gives your life meaning, but what I find is if I ask, if I use the spiritual word first, and if someone says to me, you know, I'm not particularly religious, or I'm not quite sure what that means, I usually say, well, however you define that word for yourself, and then if I ask about meaning, then it's usually in the context of very deep purpose and meaning in a person's life.
2: Well, see, This is <clears throat> this is where um, yeah. uh, the partnership between Christina and I has been very fruitful for me, because... Frankly, Christina, you can do things that I can't get away with, (laughs) with (laughs) and I watch you do them. I see how well they work for you, and it broadens my sense of possibility enormously. It really does. Uh For for example, if when I ask people um, about uh, spirituality, the the response that I often get is, "Oh, I'm not a spiritual person." And um, what I tend to have to do is to use a lot of words which evoke both spiritual perspective and meaning perspective without using either one of those words, actually. So I'll say to someone something like this, um, what do you call upon for strength? What do you call upon for strength in your life? Um, I'll ask people about the times in their lives that um, were the peak times. You know, what were peak happenings and events? And then I will tease out of those peak happenings and events the values and meanings that um, they can then see that there's a threat that goes through their lives and these values and meanings um, have been with them ever since they were very small. Um... What do you stand for? You know, I've, I've asked people questions like that, which is a very odd question. What, what do you stand for? What do you feel you stood for in your life? And people will say, you know, I've sta- I stand—I stand for fairness. I stand, and you know, and, and you begin to unpack these kinds of things. So, my—the um, idea of asking people um, a question flat out, as you would in a um, uh, in an interview schedule, as it were. Oh, it never worked for me I can never get it to work I, I really have to come at it situationally and through the back door as
0: it were And Rachel one of the the versions of that question that you suggested to me that, that has helped me in some of these situations in the Commonweal Cancer Help Program is to say to people what matters in your life now?
2: Yeah what matters in your life now or sometimes I'll ask people something as as Peripheral as, what's your favorite piece of poetry, Mm -hmm. or your favorite piece of music, Mm -hmm. and then unpack what's in that poem, Mm -hmm. or that piece of music, or I'll I'll ask people, you know, what kind of a, you know, if you were to die, what kind of a service would you Mm -hmm. want?
0: Parker Palmer has that wonderful quote. I don't remember where he gets it, but it's it's actually Emily Dickinson, I believe, who said, "Tell the truth, but tell it slant." (laughs)
2: <laughs> and that Rather like that right yeah. right I'm, I'm stealthy and uh, Christina I think in many ways you're very right present forthright frontal <laughs> and, and it works for you this is what is so astounding to me it really does work it works beautifully and I've never been able to get it to work for me
1: well, and, you know, it works in other contexts, but I. it's so great having this conversation because I think <laughs> what it is is we should work together because what, <laughs> because what it is is I think of you as a chaplain. You're talking about unpacking. So look at the context in which we suggest using that tool. It, it's really in the context of doing a clinical history. So, you know, you have 20 minutes or, you know, I have half an hour or 45 minutes for my older patients, which is really a joke, but anyway, that's what I'm granted, <laughs> you know. And so you have some time, and, you, have, you know, you do the whole complete history, and um, and so, you know, it's part of the social history, and it's really this generalist, specialist model. So I open up lots of questions. I also ask people about depression. I'm not a psychiatrist, but I ask people about depression. And we explore it a little bit, but I'm not their counselor. I'd love to unpack it, but that's not my role in that context. And so it's really about un- you know, uncovering things that may be important to someone, getting to know them, being able to identify if they're depressed or if there's a spiritual distress issue or a resource of strain. Um, and we ask lots of different questions, domestic violence. Again, I'm not an expert in that, but to find out if something's going on. And then refer the patient to the appropriate resource. So... Having been a very grateful recipient of Rachel's retreats, I can say that I would probably work with a patient and talk with them, and I can pick up on subsequent visits, and on subsequent visits, we go deeper. And sometimes even on the first visit we go deeper and we uncover all of those issues about family and meaning and music and, you know, the values. I mean, I've had patients share with me these incredible values when they say, I don't know if you consider this spiritual or not, but I believe in doing good and and that every person I meet remains, stays a part of me, and I hope I have some positive impact on their life. I mean, that's phenomenal. Profound. Profound in this little tool. So, but if there is, but but by referring then to someone like you, I would say, you know, these are really incredible issues. Would you be willing to talk to a chaplain or a counselor or someone that can then further unpack those? And then I think you use those broader questions, and that's what chaplains do, by the way, that's CPE training, is the broader questions of, well, tell me where you got those values, where did that come from, or what do you stand for, or, you know, how would you want to see your life unfold? Or if you only had this amount of time left, what would you do? And and I can ask those questions on subsequent visits, but that's the difference between a history tool and then spiritual counseling. And I think what you're talking about a little bit, Rachel, is more along the lines of counseling.
2: Well, I would say, Christina, that my sense of role may be more porous Mm -hmm. than the traditional sense of role. Exactly. In other words, um, my boundary uh, as a physician, and we're both, of course, physicians, so as a physician, I'm supposed to uh, um, ask this or I'm supposed to inquire into these areas, and these areas are the expertise of somebody else, and so I might flag them. And refer you know to somebody else exactly. uh, but I don't move in that direction because it's not my role and on um, my own sense and perhaps it's because I I've been working at the edges of medicine and of course we're the area we're talking about death is very much unfortunately at the edges of medicine and has been for years now it it, it tends to be more more acceptable within um, traditional settings, um, because I'm at the edge of medicine, my role is simply to be there as a person who happens to be a doctor Mm -hmm. and who happens to be many other things as well. And I ask my questions, I think, from that perspective, um, perhaps because I've gotten old now. um, I think uh, when I'm in the hospital at a bedside, you know, in a traditional setting, I still ask my questions from that
1: perspective. Well, and I think we all are human beings, and this is what, you know, the whole movement of humanizing medicine, we all really are coming at this from the perspective of, of, uh, of a person. But there are contexts and contextual differences, and some of that's dictated by time. I also do some house calls. And when I'm in those situations where I'm not so bound by time, um, I, you know, I often spend a long time with patients in those in those cases, and I'm in their homes, and so um, the conversations are very different, very very different. Because, and, and I and I'm blessed that I can do that. I, I you know a lot of people can't. Certainly, if you were speaking strictly about a reimbursement model, I'm not really charging for all of that. It's just something I choose to do because I feel called to do that, and I can do that. Um, not everybody can, but it, those are very, very different contexts in home visits because sometimes I'm there for an hour or two, sometimes three, and I've had patients um, who have invited me to their homes for dinner as a way of expressing gratitude, or you know, one patient who died and their family asked me to um, spend the Sabbath of that closes the week of sitting Shiva with them. I mean, very, very, very profound experiences like that where obviously the interactions are going to be very different.
2: You know, I really feel that the the constraints of formal medical interactions and especially the enormous time pressure, which is put on um, uh, almost everyone within the system right now, uh, the fact that, you know, what's reimbursable and what, what you need to do oh, in order to keep your operation going... Um, uh, requires you to, to deal very, very quickly and very diagnostically with people. Is it really possible to um, do anything more than point to spiritual issues and refer them out? And, you know, the the question I, I ask that out of real concern for my medical students and my residents who who find the strength to continue doing this difficult work by being able to know patients as more than their diseases and to to be able to have the inspiration of being in spiritual relationship with patients.
1: So I agree with you um, if you take one single visit. I think the way I look at this is, you know i I see probably twenty between twenty to twenty four patients in a day I couldn't do it <laughs> well but but i also <laughs> i mean I also teach i do other things I don't know if I could do it five days a week, but you know now, but in that time, I would say that our I believe that you can For example, being present. I think that there is something that we can do all the time and not refer out. In fact, I think it's not only something we can do but should do, and that is be fully present to our patients, whether it's a five-minute interaction, a 20-minute interaction, an hour interaction, a couple minutes interaction, whatever our interaction is. You know, One of um, my patients recently shared her experience with our students. Uh, She has ALS, and at the time that she was diagnosed, she was sent to this, I guess it was an MRI scan, and it was all very perfunctory, and she was terrified, and nobody touched her shoulder. Nobody did anything. She just had this test, and then she gets put into the exam room, and the neurologist comes and tells her, well, it's probably ALS, and walks out. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think, you know, even even if that technician had put his hand on her shoulder and reassured her that this is what we're going to do with the test and just be present a little bit, Um, and those are things I think we can do. Um I also think that we can look at the relationship as ongoing and I would hope that our healthcare system recognizes that. I'm fearful it may not, but that um this interchanging of providers, you know, that I don't think that's healthy. I think if we can look at having a relationship with our patient that extends beyond one visit. Yeah. So maybe in visit one my discussion about some of these issues is somewhat superficial. But when they come back for a follow-up visit, when we chat on the phone about a lab result, and we bring something up, that we view the the on ongo- the whole relate the whole ongoing part of our interaction as a relationship, so that with each subsequent visit, some of these issues can be dealt with a little in a little bit more depth. Um, I think that can help um, our healthcare professionals. We what I have found from some of my work is the healthcare professionals that feel very burned out and that they're not yeah. following their call, if they can't integrate this in the midst of their busy days, because right now these busy days aren't going to change, and I don't see it changing anytime soon. You know, I think we're unfortunately going to have to struggle really hard to get a more holistic healthcare system. But I think if we can create these little moments, these inspiring moments where a nurse can sit down at the bedside, or as one of my colleagues says, she does her, she's learning to do her tasks with intentionality, as opposed to just getting her ta- tasks done, you know. But with each one has the intention of being with that patient and integrating the task with the humanity of that patient and herself, so that it becomes this relationship. Those little moments, I think, are very healing for the healthcare professional and certainly for the patient. And that's what I was hoping... And I think these practical tools can do. It's a step into the door. And something I really discovered over the years in developing these courses on spirituality, you know, it started as a reductionistic model. But what happened is in the conversations that students and others would have with their patients, something happened. And as one of my students years ago said, Up until the spiritual history, I was the, quote, expert asking these questions. What medications are you taking? What's your past medical history? And then all of a sudden when I entered into the question about spirituality, we became one human being to another. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes if we can teach, and this is what I do with my medical students, is to try to teach them to be open to learning from patients because those lived experiences are what ultimately are going to transform our current students, future physicians, and hopefully future healthcare. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Christina, let me step back a little bit from these fundamental questions of, of how we achieve a, a more integrated healthcare system that includes the spiritual dimension of health. Uh, to your own story, uh, you mention in your biography that you're a member of a contemplative lay order, the Discalced Carmelites, and so I went to Wikipedia, which told me that the Discalced Carmelites, or barefoot Carmelites, is a Catholic mendicant order with roots in the Eremitic tradition of the Desert Fathers and Mothers, established in 1593 pursuant to the reform of the Carmelite order by two Spanish saints, St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. And I wanted to ask you, how old were you when you were first drawn to become uh, a member of the Discalced Carmelites?
1: I was in my Mm mid-thirties.
0: How did that happen?
1: I um, was engaged to be married and, uh, well, there were many things that happened in my life, but that was probably one of the most striking, (laughs) difficult experiences. Um, and Eric had cancer that accelerated very quickly and died. And I took some time off from the various things that I was doing in my life to uh, really um, grieve and explore that in a much deeper way. And one of the things that I did uh, was to join a take a course at the Shalem Institute in Washington. I don't know if you've heard of it, S-H-A-L-E-M. It was founded by Gerald Mays and an Episcopal priest. And Gerald Mays was a psychiatrist who wrote many books. One was Grace and Addiction. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Um, And in that was a nine-month process of spiritual formation. And I really... um, Returned, I would say, to my faith during that time. I started investigating it more. I was aware of Saint John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila when I was very young, certainly, but um, and Therese of Lisieux, the Little Flower, is another Carmelite, and I was very, in fact, she—that was my confirmationing when I was confirmed as a young girl. But it was really when I was experiencing my own suffering that those teachings really became more meaningful to me. So I read John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul, which I was going through myself. So I was very drawn in that way and started going to a Carmelite monastery and then found out about a lay group. And um, for your audience who may not know in the Catholic order... There are priests and brothers and sisters, and then there are lay people that either are associates or part of that order. So, so I'm not a, a Catholic sister. Many people think that it's not that it's lay people who find an attraction to the charism, and I was attracted to that. I was attracted to the philosophy. I was attracted to the emphasis on contemplation uh, and on union with God, however one understood that. And so. I um I joined that and have been with that group now since um the early 90s and uh currently my group is composed of mostly healthcare professionals, retreat leaders and uh um, a choir director. And so we all um are able what we we meet monthly and are able to share our spiritual practices and our journey in the context of being very active members of whatever profession we're part of, whatever our lives are part of. And I find that very, very personally supportive to me. I have a a prayer meditation practice that I do every day Um, and it's very essential to the way that I live my life and also to the way that I understand my clinical practice. In fact, very early on, and and the group that I'm with right now with a lot of healthcare professionals too, psychologists, I, I see my Practice with my patients as a spiritual practice, and Rachel and I have talked about that many, many times. So it was—I think when we first met, you feel sort of the same way, and that's. Yes, I do. It. So I, I have found the Carmelite philosophy in that group to be a way to support myself in my journey, and how I understand and am able to frame the loss of my patients' lives or um, the frustrations that I feel, as any doctor would, when there's a, quote, bad outcome, or the stress, or when I get very, very discouraged. You know, in fact, we were talking earlier about a little bit alluding about the healthcare system and what's going on, and when I get very discouraged and think, this is terrible, I only have 10 minutes, and, it's, you know, how how can I possibly manage this, and is this fair to the patient? I My spiritual practice really helps me in that because as soon as I start going down that path, I just take a deep breath and connect to my morning breath practice and am able to bring myself back into presence with that patient. Hmm.
0: In an essay that you wrote on forgiveness, you quote St. John of the Cross as saying, attachment to a hurt arising from a past event blocks the inflow of hope into our lives. And in that essay, what was striking to me was that that essay was written from a a Christ-centered perspective, it seemed to me. Uh, In your more recent books, you're writing in an inclusive way that enables everyone to relate from his or her own tradition. And while that was true here, also this this essay was quite honestly written uh, from at least what seemed to me to be a, a Christ centered perspective. Is that did I read it right?
1: Yes, and that was intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan Sul-Macy, um had a two, I think for two years he ran a series of lectures where he brought a person from a religious tradition. In my in the time that I did it, it was a rabbi and then someone from the medical or nursing profession of a different faith perspective and asked each of us to speak on a topic specifically from our tradition and i remember actually when dan asked me because i said "Oh, you know i don't normally do that i don't mind sharing that personally but i i really you know like to look at things more broadly but he really asked me to come from my catholic carmelite tradition and talk about that
0: i thought it was very powerful
1: yeah and it was a very good experience for me i um, I really appreciated then after I did that I appreciated the opportunity we presented our different views on forgiveness and reconciliation and the rabbi had a very different view from mine and we then had cases presented from the audience and then each of us would comment on it and it was one of the most enjoyable experiences I've had because it was very very broadening because also people in the audience were from different perspectives religious and non-religious and so very very interesting around forgiveness from very, very very many different perspectives.
0: So could you say a little more about your experience with raising the question of forgiveness uh, with patients uh, in the dying process?
1: I, um, the way that it usually comes up is, I don't know that I would say that I raise it. I open up a conversation and it usually comes up. So people might um, bring up an issue of thinking that maybe they're punished by something that they've... that the illness is punishing them, that's a punishment for them, or they bring up um, past regrets. Um, and so then I I follow their lead and ask them to talk a little bit more about that. Um, I, I don't necessarily prescribe a forgiveness intervention um, in the sense of saying, I think you need to be forgiven, because I believe that that's something the person has to come to on their own. And a lot of the conversation is simply being present to the other person as they tell, narrate their story and where they're coming from. I, I might ask a few reflective questions, well, why do you think that, or tell me more about that. But what I found in those discussions is that people... Eventually, come to a point where either they just don't see a way to forgive themselves, and that's just part of who they are and where they want to be in that journey, or they want to move more towards that. I work very closely with chaplains too, so when I when I talk to patients and issues around forgiveness come up, I certainly explore it. But that is an area that will also invite the chaplain into the relationship and into the conversation and encourage patients to further talk about some of these issues with board-certified chaplain as well.
0: By the way, is your medical practice focused on these questions of spirituality, or are you a practicing physician with normal physician uh, responsibilities who raises this as appropriate as you move?
1: Yeah, I'm a practicing physician. I see. I, I see... I'm a general internist. I right. see a lot of geriatric. I have a specialty in geriatrics. I see a lot of my patients are geriatric, but not not solely. And I'm in a palliative care physician as well. So I will see patients uh, for palliative care or, and or hospice. But I am a practicing physician who raises this as part of everything else that I deal with with my patients.
0: Right, Rachel. What is your perspective on forgiveness?
2: My Sense is that um, you mean as an issue at, at, at end of life? Mm-hmm. I think this is very highly um, individual. Uh, I have worked with people for whom forgiveness is a total non-issue. It's just not an issue. They they have not carried um, um, an unresolved relationship or an or or an action that they have been ashamed of through uh, their lives. Um, Often people feel that they have let people down by dying and asking forgiveness of the people around them for not not, not being there to continue facing the problems of life with them. In other words, you'll have to raise the children alone, that kind of thing. That comes up, but not long-term forgiveness. Um, I don't. I don't get a whole lot of that, and I, I don't know why. You know, so I assume. You know, if you look at the the data in the culture, there are many, many people who have committed adultery, who may be carrying that in one way or another. But it doesn't seem. Um, it doesn't seem like a huge dimension of what people want to talk to me
0: about. Mm-hmm. What about you, Christina? Well,
1: I have to agree with Rachel. I don't think it's a major issue. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's a major issue. I mean, there are some regrets that people have. I guess we could lump them into the category of forgiveness, but there are regrets that people have. Or they may feel that they didn't treat someone as well or, you know you know, my wife is no longer here, but I cheated on her, I feel so badly, you know, things, things like that, what may not be the the major issue for the person, but it comes up. But I, I wouldn't say, um, mostly I think the major issues usually have to be with grief, you know, first that I'm dying, I don't want to die, and then once it's beyond that, then the issues are, what do I do with the time that has that I've had left, and then it may be rituals, and then how how do I take care of my family? If family's part of it, or how do I leave a legacy, or how will I be remembered? I mean, those are how will I be remembered is a huge a one. Yeah. yeah, the big one,
2: and yeah. also fear, Christina. No, um, you know where people are saying uh, I'm afraid to die, and that that's a, a, a wonderful doorway to go through because you begin to talk about what is death. Uh, what, what what do people feel about death? What do they see? What do they hope about death? And um, that can open up a, a very, very large uh, area of spirituality right there. But um, I, I also find that people talk about things that are quite different than you would expect them to talk about. Such no as? Well, but, I mean, forgiveness, as, as I say, forgiveness is, is, not, is not one. It's not one. Although I think that there are some people whose lives have been very guilt-ridden or who have very deep regrets for, for choices they
1: have made. I think where I see forgiveness come up, actually, is more with the family and the professional caregivers um yeah, it's usually sure. the it, don't you think i mean it's yeah. a, well the 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 whole concept which you know i i was very um uh, was made aware of when i did this retreat with Rachel many years ago but how we immediately doctors and nurses, doctors more so I think, move to that area of could I have done something differently? Did I make any errors? Was there some something wrong here? And then the family members, did I not care enough? You know, the, the, particularly people who've had chronic illness and the family members are the vigilant caregivers and, you know, they call with every change, you know, and I, I have family caregivers who call and say they're breathing a little funny, should I do something? And then, you know, if that person dies in the middle of the night, uh oh, should I have called you or should I have taken them to the ER or you know, all of those types of issues, I see that much more there, actually, than with patients.
0: Christina, in your your newest book, Making Healthcare Whole, where you're really addressing the enormous challenge of integrating spirituality into patient care and particularly into palliative care, uh, there's a flowchart um, on page 71 uh, called Inpatient Spiritual Care Implementation Model, and and forgive me for asking this but I need to ask it the flow chart is quite complex uh, you know you set up a spiritual screening upon admission there are nurses, chaplains, social workers and physicians involved there's a spiritual history there's a spiritual assessment the interdisciplinary team rounds with the chaplain as a spiritual care expert, there's a treatment plan, there are outcomes, there's reevaluation, so on and so forth and I find myself wondering whether there isn't a fundamental tension between the need to create flowcharts of this complexity in order to reintegrate spirituality into uh, medical care and the very nature of, uh, of spirit itself. In other words, uh, is there something about Essentially, modern healthcare is fundamentally bureaucratic. And is there something and and spirit? If we are Emersonian, for example, is fundamentally Taoist in some way? It flows. It's hard to put your hands on. Is there a danger that in uh, somehow trying to capture and name and uh, and routinize the integration of spirituality into patient care? Uh, in these ways, that somehow the the spirit itself sort of escapes through a side window while we're trying to figure out how this can be made to work bureaucratically?
1: I think so, yes. I think there's always that danger. Mm-hmm. Um, so why create a model like that? Mm-hmm. Again, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that we... Um, we, we are bureaucratic we do function in these models and flow charts and quality improvement and all of that so I think you you have to somehow speak the language the main language of the system
2: mm-hmm.
1: until it changes you know and mm-hmm. maybe maybe this kind of model will ultimately change the system so it can be a little less flow chartish but um, You know, one of the problems I think chaplains have had over the years, they've been around for many, many years, obviously, but part of the problem has been that they haven't been able to um, speak to doctors, nurses, hospital administrators, et cetera, about what they do. And they they took pride in saying it's very hard to describe what we're doing because it's about presence, it's about listening. Um, I understood what they did, but they couldn't put it into words. So what's the what's what's the consequence of that? Is that people didn't think to integrate them because if you don't understand something you, or someone, it's going to be hard to know how how to work with chaplains. What does that mean? How do they fit in? Now what chaplains are doing is actually chaplains like this model because it enables them now to say to hospital administrators, "This is what we do. See, we are the spiritual experts on this kind of on a team. If you are talking about a hospital or inpatient setting, or." Now there's a move on the next page. It's an outpatient uh, model. You know, we are. Their tra- chaplains and are now trying to figure out how to ways to work as sort of a virtual team in the outpatient world. Um, so it gives them a way, and so I think as a result, now chaplains are more rec- getting more recognized in healthcare systems.
0: Mm-hmm. I can see that. Yeah.
1: So. Okay, so
0: it really. Not it, bad. Um, no. So I mean, I think the way you're answering my question is. This kind of flowchart enables the chaplains to describe to other people their appropriate role uh, in this whole process.
1: It, it, that's one. Right. But then it also helps us. It mm-hmm. helps us identify what the rest of us on the team can mm-hmm. do. So when you mention spiritual care, most people right now think of the spiritual care department they don't think of spiritual care as something that's provided by the doctor the nurse the social worker the, the person on the housekeeping staff the the social the psychologist maybe even the pharmacist on the team I and mean, we didn't even put everybody in there that can be part of this but but how so what this what this does is it broadens the model to say that we're all responsible for spiritual care in different ways based on our training and what we know and what we can do you know i I can't do what a chaplain does, and they can't do what I do, but certainly chaplains' issues of pain and physical symptoms and other things come up in their conversations, and when they talk to me about the patient, they can say, you know, I don't know if your patient told you this, but this is really what's happening to them. They're very fearful of the odor that's emanating. Is there anything that you can help them with that, you know, and the person obviously was more comfortable sharing that with a chaplain than with me, and sometimes patients are more comfortable sharing spiritual issues with me, and so I can share that with the chaplain. So it's the idea of a, a team and a holistic approach. At the bottom of that chart, what we put in and what those dotted lines are all about is what I think you're trying to get at, which is that we engage in these relationships that are transformative. And what my hope is is that while we're approaching this in a reductionistic Oversimplified perhaps or bureaucratic, whatever word you want to use, model. My hope is that as this gets more integrated, people will become open to the possibility of transformation and hopefully over time, and I think it's going to take many, many, many years, we can start seeing more novel ways to approach healthcare. You know, I shared this model the other evening with someone who is a main staffer of the current healthcare reform. uh, team uh, on on the Hill, and he uh, he works with the main Senate committee that's working on this on this bill. And so I was shocked at his response because I thought, oh, I'm going to share this, and of course I'm, I've tried this before, and people look at me as if what are you talking about? Because that's this is so vague for them, you know. But I shared this model, and it opened up a very interesting conversation because he then said to me. I am all about patient-centered care. I'm all about integrating spirituality. And it's too early right now to get that into the current bill. People, people will say it, but they don't really understand what it means. Hopefully, models like this will make it even clearer later on, you know, over the years, to people on the Hill and others creating policy. So even in that arena, people are looking for simplified ways to understand this very, what can be a very complex issue.
0: Christina Polchowski and Rachel Naomi Remen, thank you both so much for being with us at the New School.
1: It's been a delightful conversation. i really enjoyed this,
0: Rachel <laughs> Yeah, it was just a complete joy. And Rachel, again, thank you for introducing us, and uh, we hope you'll come visit. Christina, we'd love to have you out here, and, and I'm so glad to know of your work.